Welcome to this um, Royal College of Psychiatrists podcast. Uh, I'm Connor Davidson. I'm a general adult psychiatrist and I'm the college's uh, autism champion. I've got two fantastic guests with me today, James Cusack and Diraj Ray. So I'll hand over to you first, James. Could you just introduce yourself for the listeners and uh, tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, hi, everyone. I'm James Cusack. Um, I'm the chief executive um, of Autistica, which is the UK's leading autism research and campaign charity. I used to be Autistica's director of science. I have worked in academia directly with autistic people and their families in autism policy. And I'm also um, autistic myself. And Diraj. Hi, all. I am Dheeraj Jai. I am a Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Bristol. Uh, I'm also a consultant psychiatrist at Bristol's uh, Autism, Adult Autism Services, and I have a background in autism and learning disabilities uh, research and clinical work. Fantastic. And I just realized I didn't really give you my bona fides. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a general adult psychiatrist. I started off as a CMHT psychiatrist, but I've developed an interest in, in autism over the years. And, and really because I, I realized that a lot of the patients I was seeing in the clinic were autistic and realized there's this huge overlap between autism and mental health. I now work in the Leeds uh, Adult Autism Specialist Service. But that's a bit of a segue into the topic today, uh, because we are going to be discussing mental health in autism. I'm a general adult psychiatrist, so I come at uh, this primarily from that position, but, but hopefully we will touch on um, mental health conditions in, in children as well. So this should be relevant to, to you, whatever specialty you do. So we're first of all going to explore this relationship between autism and mental health conditions. I'm wondering here, James, could you give us an overview of the sort of the prevalence and the incidence of, of, of mental health issues in, in autistic people? Yeah, so we, we know that in autism, um, autistic people are more likely to experience mental health conditions and the prevalence and incidence estimates vary a great deal. Um, but, you know, there have been studies done at, Mod at the Maudsley Hospital and KCL, which estimating children that mental health rates can be as high as 7 in 10 for autistic children um, and around and research tends to suggest around half of adults experience um, mental health problems um, at any given time that information is quite often from self self-report when we when we speak to autistic people and uh, and their families what you, you you tend to get is is a picture which is about maybe an increased likelihood of experiencing mental health problems because the person is autistic themselves but also a sort of life story which is about a series of adverse experiences maybe they're having a difficult time at school fitting in dealing with the environment around them being bullied facing stigmatizing attitudes struggling to get into work and so on and all of these things in the same way that there would be adverse experiences for people who aren't autistic are of course extremely aggressive for autistic people and also contribute to the increased likelihood of autistic people experiencing mental health problems. Yeah, I remember the question about that point about trauma is so interesting. I remember doing some training with an autistic um, adult a few years ago and she spoke about 
uh, being basically sexually abused, taken advantage of um, when she was about 13 or 14 by a sort of pred predatory male, um, in part because she didn't kind of pick up on the warning signs and she didn't realize that she was kind of mm. being, being groomed. Um, and she spoke about the incidence of all kinds of trauma being higher in, in autistic people, but, uh, but including you know, sexual abuse. So that really stuck with me. Um, Diraj, have you got anything to add then about this, this question of the, the, the prevalence or the incidence yeah. of mental health problems in autism? So James was saying probably about half of people with autism experience um, mental health difficulties. Would you agree yes. with that? I mean, certainly in terms of as relative to the general population or non-autistic population, as it were, uh, it's very clear across the board research suggesting higher odds or higher risk of uh, all uh, sorts of mental health problems. Uh, as we were discussing earlier, the numbers are a bit, you know, can vary from study to study. And that's just because of the lack of, you know, it's very recent that this issue of higher, you know, mental health problems being a, a major issue has come about. And, um, and so epidemiological studies are catching up. And what has been missing in uh, a lot of studies is, you know, longitudinal studies looking at pathways of what happens, why, what happens to children, autistic children when they grow up, uh, uh, or why do some people have more prevalence of mental health problems. And I'm glad that studies are now starting to, um, or longitudinal start studies are starting to emerge, uh, which are demonstrating some of these pathways. So. For example, you were talking about trauma, very well recognized in clinical work. People are talking about all the very difficult traumatic experiences they had throughout their years of growing up, particularly about exclusion uh, in school, bullying, marginalization. Uh, that comes up very frequently. Uh, and so a recent, some years ago, we published this work uh, based on the children of the 90s study in Bristol. It's a long-standing cohort study, uh, which looked at this, whether this question of whether children who have a diagnosis of autism or have autistic traits, are they more likely to have a common mental health problem like depression uh, when they turn 18? Uh, and if so, what is the role of uh, trauma in that, in that paper? We looked at the role of bullying. And, uh, and so we found quite a, a, a strong association between having a diagnosis of autism, but also having social communication difficulties, just as a trait of regardless of a diagnosis, having difficulties in social communication, seeing very consistent longitudinal associations with depression by the age of 18, uh, and a very strong mediating role of bullying uh, during uh, the developmental period. And uh, so I think that underscores the fact and it bullying in that paper explained about a third of the variance uh, in the diagnosis of depression uh, and out with uh, any ge genetic propensity uh, towards autism. Mm. So that was uh, one of the novel aspects that accounted for the genetic liability uh, in this case. Uh, so it's not over and beyond any propensity to have um, later mental health problems due to genetic, which is a pleiotropic associations. There's a strong association uh, with environmental factors. Yeah, I mean, it's like so many things in psychiatry, isn't it? There's a, there's a combination of the genetic vulnerability and then the environmental factors that, that come into play. Are there any other 
reasons, James, that, that, that you would point to uh, as to why mental health problems are more common in the autistic population, aside from, from what we've spoken about already, trauma and perhaps a, a shared genetic liability? I think, I think there are sort of well-known factors and things related to autism that um, make the types of mental health problems that autistic people face um, particularly relevant. So, you know, we know that, for example, anxiety is particularly prevalent in, in autism and there's things that are specific to autism, such as the need for certainty and routine that can be very, very difficult and related and as a consequence, autistic people can find uncertainty very difficult, and that makes um, that makes them more likely to be anxious. In a similar way, things like sensory difficulties um, can um, alleviate, um, increase anxiety, and the likelihood of mental health problems make autistic people more likely to withdraw, not participate in environments, feel that the environment isn't uh, necessarily built for them. And I think you know the key thing that we hear from autistic people about anxiety and, and, and mental health and more broadly is this is their top priority you know and this yeah. is the thing that they want research to address most urgently so they so that, and that was really quite an interesting finding for us and so um in terms of the things that autistic people and families are telling us can most improve their quality of, of life quite often it is addressing these needs related to mental health yeah Oh, yeah. And I see so many patients in my clinic who, who complain of anxiety. Oh, I'd say at least a third. And I, I think the, the research evidence suggests that anxiety disorders are at least three, if not five times more common in autism mm -hmm. than they are in the, in the general population. And often it seems to be a social anxiety picture. I think that's the most common one I see clinically anyway, which kind of makes sense, I suppose, because autism is a an issue with social interaction um, and communication and um, autistic people do find social situations more stressful than average. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say on, on, on that, you know, I can say this sort of as someone who's autistic myself, is obviously you've got varying types of autistic people and who have various different perspectives on this, but one of the things that I sort of can certainly empathise with that I've experienced myself is, of course, being told that you're autistic by virtue makes you aware that you at the very least you communicate differently from people if not you potentially have quite specific difficulties with it and so with anyone that would make you socially anxious if if you if you if you, if you see what i mean mm -hmm. so like it's, it's, it's a very functional response in a way to that knowledge is to sort of have a sort of set of social anxiety but then also the other parts I think of being autistic make people also more likely to to experience those forms of 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 social anxiety as well and again you know that's definitely I think there's, there's lots of as you say research literature that shows that that's quite specifically um a big a big need and I think part of it is really about creating environments which are accepting but also supporting autistic people to sort of become more accepting of themselves and kind of coming to terms with the, with the sort of different ways in which they do things. Yeah, every time we make a diagnosis in my service, or nearly every time anyway, we, we ask the person who's newly diagnosed to have um, some compassion and sort of look after themselves, self-compassion. Self because mm. um, so many people we see have experienced adversity of various kinds, you know, whether it be childhood trauma or bullying, or anxiety or problems with relationships or at work and you know people do tend to 
internalize that and i think it affects your hmm. your self-esteem maybe your sense of self-worth i think that's probably one of the factors that leads to increased rates of depression hmm. in this in this in this population um and so i think it's really important to say try and be try and be kind to yourself try and be try and forgive yourself you know and uh, we do try and say that at the point of diagnosis uh Diva, I just want to, do you have anything else to add um in terms of, of why autistic people are more at risk of mental health problems or do you think we've covered it <laughs> i think we've broadly covered but just to sum up uh as psychiatrists, we always think of conceptualize things as biopsychosocial, and this is a this question, you know, illustrates that there might be some biological uh, predisposition, uh, with whether it's genetic or whether any other biological reasons. Uh, then there is the psycho psychosocial elements, which are quite important, and which importantly could be where you know we look at modifying this relationship between autism and adverse uh, mental health outcomes. Uh, and you know, some of them are, could be based within sort of local environments like you know, a work setting or you know, just, just your surrounding and, and the environment around you. But some, some of them are bigger issues like societal attitudes, stigma and, and um, acceptance uh, of autistic people uh, and their strengths uh, within the society. Mind you, it would just be worth mentioning at this point, um, uh, I've been autism champion in the college for over a year now. And one of the things that perhaps I wasn't anticipating and uh, which has really struck me is a lot of college members have come forward uh, uh, and, and approached me and, and, and others in the college and said, well, actually, I'm autistic. I'm an autistic psychiatrist or a neurodivergent psychiatrist. And that's been very striking for me and perhaps something that we don't think about enough you know that we have colleagues working in mental health services and, and trainees as well who may be autistic okay but let's let's move on now to speak a bit more about specific conditions that occur in autism specific mental health conditions so we have already touched on anxiety disorders um, and there may be more that, that the two of you want to say around that uh, but i'm wondering if, if we could uh, also speak about other commonly uh, co-occurring uh, mental health issues in autism. Uh, so I'll come to you first, James, on that question. Yeah, so we know that, um, that autism is associated with a range of, of, of mental health conditions. Anxiety is the most prevalent one, but we also know that as there's some good evidence that autistic people approach adulthood, that autism is associated with an increased likelihood of, of depression and also uh, post-traumatic stress disorder there's some emerging literature to suggest that you know relating to the point that Diraj made earlier that autistic people are are more likely to, to have traumatic experiences as you reflected on yourself as well yeah. um, um Connor as well so there's an inc there's increasing recognition um that post-traumatic stress disorder is, is, is more prevalent in autism and then the, the other one where we're, we're seeing um quite a surprisingly high um, presence of, of 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 autism is in eating disorder services as well. So quite a high number of people who have um, an eating uh, an eating an eating disorder um, appear to meet criteria for um, a diagnosis for autism. So I think according to one study, it was around um, about one in five 
people in eating disorder clinics are, are sort of potentially meeting criteria for autism. And, and this is important because the strategies that you might use in people who aren't autistic may not um, work as, as effectively in people um, who are autistic. And we, we have a lack of evidence regarding what works for them. And Devaj? Uh, well, I agree with all of uh, what James has um, talked about. Uh, maybe I should add, you know, there's also sort of pretty strong evidence now on um, more severe and enduring mental health problems uh, being associated um, as an outcome of um, autism, uh, which include uh, bipolar and uh, non-effective psychosis, uh, which, for example, schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. So uh, both by schizophrenia or other non-effective psychotic uh, conditions, bipolar disorder appear to be about four to five times more likely uh, in autistic people than the non-autistic population. So there are studies from uh, Sweden and um, uh, and Denmark uh, and other Scandinavian cohorts, uh, which have uh, demonstrated that. But I must also uh, add here. Uh, that, you know, as a, Connor, I'm not sure if you've come across this, but I early on talking about maybe 10, uh, 12 years ago, when I started my, um, you know, early on in my psychiatric career, I was seeing a number of people who uh, had lifelong history of schizophrenia, for instance, only to be re-diagnosed as uh, mm-hmm. Asperger or autistic uh, later on, just because the, you know, you know, it wasn't uh, a condition that was well known at that time. Uh, and so the only way uh, our ancestors in terms of uh, <laughs> previous consultants, the way they would conceptualize this person's difficulties uh, was uh, schizophrenia. So there might be some issue of misdiagnosis here. Uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, it, that really resonated with me. Particularly mm-hmm. when I worked in CMHT, uh, I saw s- several patients that, that came into that category yeah. and, and often the, it was this kind of simple schizophrenia patients where there, there really wasn't frank delusions or hallucinations but and I, I, there is some of this overlap isn't there between autism and other other conditions you know yeah. in schizophrenia you might have the sort of blunting of affect in autism you do sometimes have reduced facial expression you might, might have slowed speech you might have slightly yeah. unusual behaviors or unusual outlooks on things and yeah, you can see why why that, that misdiagnosis can occur. So, which is why I for sort of one for you know encourage all trainees. In fact, everybody thinking about autism to be thinking of developmental period as being crucial uh, in making diagnoses. So, you know, I illustrate that to have done it with some trainees here in, in Bristol about the fact that if you were if we were to be using our standard diagnostic uh, assessments uh, for somebody who's got chronic schizophrenia, for instance, doing an ADOS assessment with them, they are likely to, you know, score even if they had, um, you know, no evidence of autism, like they might, some of them might score in that autistic range. And so that eliciting and understanding the early um, development is crucial in making a diagnosis in these uh, cases. You're, you're, you're talking like sort of three to five years old, sort of tra- early childhood. So, so. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so talking about, well, 
it's not within adults as you know it's not always yeah. easy to remember people sometimes yeah. are trying to recall uh 40 50 years uh old stories in terms of how yeah. things were but just that developmental period whether there was any evidence of um autistic features at that time and we try to keep it loose of course yeah as early as possible uh, but quite often or in some cases like this the example of somebody with chronic psychotic illness uh, it might be that they say everything was okay in terms of and they were in terms of social communication interaction uh, and other issue issues was fine until uh, they got sick at the age of 25 or something and then yeah. after that things their personality changed or and they changed uh, in different ways so the developmental aspect is extremely important for trainees to appreciate and the fact that people might appear autistic in a one-off interview but uh, their life story might tell something different yeah I know I totally agree with you 100% there. I mean, that's a big take home message for any trainees listening is take that longitudinal view and take a, a really good developmental history. It can really kind of cut through the confusion. Increasingly, we are seeing more women present to uh, specialist autism teams and more females receiving diagnosis of autism. And I have noticed that um, the developmental history can be a little less clear cut, particularly if you're talking about very intellectually able females. And sometimes it's not until um, sort of high school age that where the autistic traits and difficulties really become more apparent. And something which maybe strategically neither of you have mentioned yet, because <laughs> it is a bit of a, a kind of controversial topic, but a hot topic hmm. nevertheless, and one that I think we do have to touch on, is increasing concern in the autism clinical uh, community and indeed the autistic service user community about um, young autistic females being misdiagnosed with mm -hmm. personality disorder, particularly borderline personality disorder. Um, now, I know, you know, this is a kind of controversial area. There's not great research evidence here. So we're largely talking about sort of expert clinical opinion. Um, but I'm wondering, Diaz, do you have, um, what's your view on that? I mean, I, I agree, first of all, that we just need to do more work in this area in terms of research understanding. Uh, and I know some uh, work is already ongoing uh, in terms of trying to differentiate between what are the key factors that can differentiate between um, autism and personality disorder. We also know almost certainly from this is clinical and you know anecdote, uh, but almost certainly that there is an overlap. There's some people who have, you know, might have features of both autism and uh, borderline personality or other personality difficulties. And we also know that uh, some, some uh, women might have been misdiagnosed with personality disorder and later, uh, when it later emerges, they actually had autism, just like the example of schizophrenia we, we were talking about. I guess the controversial bit is, and I'm happy to you know put it out there, is there's also on the other side uh, that Again, anecdotally, we're aware that there might be people who, for whom a diagnosis of borderline personality might be more appropriate when various reasons, including acceptability or you know, stigma, uh, people seem to get quite invested in uh, a diagnosis of autism instead. And then clinicians can find it quite tricky because this could be uh, for various reasons, you know, maybe complaints or uh, 
challenges to how they carry on their uh, diagnostic practice can feel quite pressured into making that diagnosis of autism. Uh, so this is an area that's out there. We, we really do need to discuss much more as clinicians as and definitely as researchers, uh, but also in this wider concept of, you know, how do we get our concepts correct? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I, particularly online, I've noticed that, that this debate can become quite polarized, you know, quite quite binary. There's a sense that you either have autism or you have personality disorder and the clinicians are getting it wrong. <laughs> but, you know, the reality on the ground is that there is a sort of fuzzy boundary between a lot of our psychiatric conditions. And it's often not quite as clear cut as a sort of either or picture. I mean, I think there is some overlap in the middle and there are some patients who, who meet the criteria for both autism and personality mm. disorder. Um, and I think it's potentially doing those patients a disservice if, if we don't identify the personality disorder mm -hmm. element because then they're potentially missing out on, on, on treatments like yeah. you know, adapted dialectical behavior therapy or other treatments that, that might help. Mm. Um, and absolutely, and it's a disservice. It, whenever we make a wrong diagnosis or incorrect, you know, it's a disservice to patients um, yeah. either ways. Mm. James, I'll bring you in on this this topic if you if you want to wade yeah, in on sure, it. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I I think it's very understandable that that, that people um, have a fit. You can you can have a, an idea in their mind about how they how they identify, and that's one thing. I think that's you know I think there's sort of various debates online, for example, about sort of the the, the value of self identification versus uh, the value of, um, of of clinical diagnosis. I think it's just important to acknowledge they're just different things, and 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 people might identify in a specific way, but um, also that clinicians need to follow sort of quite structured methods in terms of making making decisions. You know, I think um, Dira just hit the nail on the head in many ways in suggesting we just don't have enough evidence regarding how we make decisions um, in this in this area. And, and I think one of the things at Autistica that we certainly hear from people, and one of the things that we're really moving to, I think we should be all moving towards anyway, is really about understanding the person and that always bearing in mind that these diagnostic labels are, are, are certainly um, valuable, but actually it's about understanding the person's strengths and needs and what they need next in terms of providing providing the right support and then I guess I would just say finally you know you sort of started this conversation by mentioning women in autism and I guess it's just to acknowledge that in the context of of this conversation of course there is some evidence to suggest that being autistic in a woman might make you more likely to experience mental health particularly more likely to experience mm -hmm. mental health problems because you're you're possibly less likely to be identified than if you were male for a range of reasons which are which are, which appear to be quite often socially constructed around people's perceptions around autism and um and what that and what that means which means that they're less likely to be um referred on so just just to bear in mind that by the time that someone who's female gets an autism diagnosis that they might be more likely to have had a history of mental health issues as well and may have been misdiagnosed um, themselves which you've already uh, okay, I just wanted to bring in uh, one more specific co-occurring condition because this is a, a nuts eating disorders 
again, because this is a bit of a hot, hot topic issue at the moment, and we have in fact had some discussions within the college about um, the overlap between autism and, um, and eating disorders um, because of the recent publication of the new um, college guidelines, the MEAD guidance, which supersedes the marzipan guidance. But, but James, you've, you've, you've sort of mentioned in an earlier answer about, about the eating disorders in, in autism. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, just just to say that, um, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, we know around one in five women with anorexia um, are likely to be um, autistic, according to research. Um, obviously, that's concerning, given the, the um, health outcomes associated with eating disorder. And we're particularly concerned about this because we worry that if you're autistic and you have anorexia, that you might face um, particularly poor outcomes, you know, so reduced levels of recovery and more um, persistent difficulties with other areas of mental health, integration into society and so on. And so one of the things that we've been really um, trying to understand both from a research and policy perspective is, you know, how is it that we adapt assessments and treatments um, for um, autistic people um, and to understand um, the fact that, you know, based on some of the lived experience examples that we've heard, that um, people's experiences of things of, of different eating disorders might be um, different if you're if you're autistic and sort of trying to understand what it is that we need to do to adapt services appropriately. And uh, Deeraj, we, we're learning more and more now about ARFID, avoiding mm. restrictive food intake dis disorder, and it certainly seems that that's more um, common in, in autistic people. Can you give us a brief overview of ARFID? <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'd rather not. <laughs> uh, I have sort of some, somewhat focused less on that area of work. We, I mean, we have done work on eating disorders and autism, uh, again, within the uh, ALSPAC cohort. Um, but, uh, you know, in, within research, we actually, you know, one thing we were lacking or still lacking, but doing better on now is actually collecting data on ARFID because uh, Prior to that, you know, a lot of the, or until recently, a lot of eating disorder data would focus mainly on things like restriction, uh, you know, binging, purging, you know, the more classic uh, eating disorders. But what I can say around that stuff is, again, as I mentioned earlier, I should sort of bring this up, uh, uh, that, you know, a diagnosis of autism and uh, subsequent eating disorders. Again, getting pretty well established that association. Uh, but that might be the tip of the iceberg in terms of thinking about it from the from a, at a societal level, because even below that threshold of a diagnosis, when we start looking at social communication difficulties in the population, so I'm talking about 10% of the population now, the 10% of the population which has some, you know, which score uh, the highest on social communication difficulties. Even there, there's a strong association with these different eating behaviors. Mm, yeah. Sorry, I, 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 I digress from your question about <laughs> ARFID, but okay. I'd rather not <laughs> talk about ARFID because I don't know so much about it myself. So I, I need to attend college CPD on ARFID. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think, I think I do as well. Well, let, yeah. let's... Let's leave it there then. Maybe just to say that ARFID is, is where there's restriction of food, certain types of food is my understanding. And often 
Um, it can be to do with the sensory qualities of the food, the texture, the color, sometimes the taste. Um, and, and parents and, and, you know, the families of autistic people would tell us this is way, way before it was even named, you know, this kind of or what would people call picky eating or certain mm. choices. We know there's a relationship or we've always known that, I guess, uh, but we've now formalized it in some ways. Yeah, it's yet another area like, mm -hmm. like many of the, the topics we're going to discuss today where, where more research is, is yeah. needed. Okay, I'm going to move on now to treatment of mental health conditions in autism. And I'm going to start off with um, a paper that one of the leading autism researchers in the UK, he's called William Mandy, published a paper just recently, just this year, in, in the journal Autism. And he described this, this situation as a crisis. And he said, and I quote, the autism mental health crisis can be described as the following paradox. Autistic people have a high chance of developing mental health problems, but a low chance of receiving effective help. And a conservative reading of the prevalence data is that about one in 25 CMHT patients are autistic. So your average CMHT care coordinator who has a case of maybe 50 people, um, at least two of them, probably more, will be autistic. And if you look at mental health inpatient wards, uh, about one in 10 uh, adult inpatients are autistic. So it's a huge issue for mental health services and for psychiatrists. But yet all of the survey data and, and indeed the outcome data would suggest that autistic people struggle to access appropriate mental health support and appropriate mental health treatment. And indeed, the, the outcomes seem to be poorer on average, um, including the risk of suicide. Um, so let me come to you then, first of all, D-Rights, for, for this. It's a big topic, obviously. <laughs> but what's your take on, on mental health services for autistic people and why so many autistic patients report difficulties accessing mm. appropriate mental health support? It's really complex, um, as you can imagine. And the first thing is that we are in the context of, you know, last many years, we are seeing declining the infrastructure, mental health infrastructure and services we provide are declining for the population as a whole, as in number of beds and, and uh, services are overstretched. And then, of course, um, so that's, that's the background on which it's happening. I also recall this time, which I think it's carrying on that, you know, so in, because of lower resources and mental health services, quite often we have we obviously have to set thresholds and the thresholds are now getting quite high. Um, so in order to get access to crisis services, for instance, or outpatient services, quite, yeah, the threshold of, you know, how much of a risk one might you pose to yourself or others, et cetera, can be quite high. And in my ex clinical experience, this has become uh, you know, people, autistic people fall between gaps in these kind of things. So they don't, you know, they really unwell, really require support, but some often there might be this issue of that you don't have another, you just have an autism diagnosis, but the other diagnoses you have don't meet our threshold. Uh, so that, that can be a, a barrier. And, and increasingly we're realizing, I, I suppose, and we ought to acknowledge uh, that risk issues might present differently in 
within autistic people and just to measure measurement we what we haven't discussed in detail and probably for another podcast really measurement of common mental health problems severe and enduring health problems mental health problems in autism might be a bit different than than the standardized tools that we use uh, so there's this issue of uh, services thresholds but then training is the other bit about a lot of us you know our services uh, you know might just need more uh, training and understanding of autism specific care and this can't come from spe- specialist autism autism services that can't happen like we just won't have the capacity ever to do that so everybody needs to be aware uh, and uh, and act appropriately um James, what, what's your take on, on this question of mental health services for autistic people with, with mental health problems? Yeah, so this is something that we've been thinking about, particularly in the context of, of, of anxiety. So we have this goal by 2030 to ensure that um, autistic people have evid- access to evidence-based tr- treatments specifically for um, anxiety. And we've been engaging with autistic people, families, clinicians around um, this question, and it, it goes back to the point that I was making earlier. It's about people's life trajectories and about the fact that if you're autistic, these mental health problems occur in a broader context where we're seeing that autistic people are basically, unfortunately, experiencing inequalities across the board but in terms of their access to work, health inequalities, and attitudes towards autistic people, um, sort of exclusion from environments, um, you know, you know, and, and so on, struggles with getting a job and, and, and things like that. And so basically what you're seeing is a physical people put on a put on a trajectory where they're not sort of getting the same opportunities um, as non-autistic people. And I think one of the things that has really come from the work that, we, that we've been doing is to actually try to understand from the moment that someone's got a diagnosis, if that's happening on quite early on, to try and be aware of the fact that that autistic person may be, be have an increased likelihood of experiencing mental health problems, you know, in particular things like um, anxiety, and to be aware of the things that we can do to change the environment and to support and to support people around them and the person themselves to 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 live well because that will increase the likelihood of them then going on and relying on services down the line. And so I think there is quite a strong argument, you know, from a policy perspective around sort of in a cost-effective way, such as trying to intervene and support people early on. And so I think being aware of that is really, really important. You know. I think there is emerging evidence which helps us to understand why these mental health problems are occurring. And Deeraj and I were both part of a study which showed that while we have an emerging understanding of why mental health problems are occurring, we don't actually have a particularly clear evidence base on what does and doesn't work for different mm. autistic people in terms of in terms of treatments, particularly in in, in adults. But we do know in, in, in children that um, there's some sort of some sort of indicative evidence that things like CBT and things like that might be might be helpful, particularly in the treatment of um, anxiety. So I think we're beginning to hopefully get to a stage where these things will flow through and begin to tell us what does and doesn't work. And I guess one thing 
that um, I guess we talked about as a group when we were, when we were doing the study in, in terms of how we messaged around the study in terms of access and treatments, just because there's not available evidence yet, that's still not an excuse for doing nothing. So it's important yeah. to be still very proactive around supporting people um, around um, their mental their mental health issues. So yeah, I think there's an awful lot to do. And then finally, just if we look at that trajectory from prevention to treatment of mental health problems, and then people who end up in inpatient care, there's actually also pretty poor evidence to understand that journey into inpatient mental health care as well, and the things that we could be doing to prevent mm. that and to get people out of that at, um, at the moment as well, which I think is is, is difficult for clinicians to. Mm. We I should say we're recording this two days after the Panorama program, Ed, mm. um, which really shows some horrific scenes of, of people in a psychiatric hospital being. Um, being mistreated, basically, and uh, one of those patients was autistic. I mean, that's obviously a, a, an extreme example, but but we know that autistic people, by and large, don't do that well on our inpatient yeah. wards, and that's certainly one of the things we need to think about going forward. Um, which kind of brings me on to the topic of reasonable adjustments. So listeners will be familiar with that phrase, I'm sure, but it's from the Equality Act, and in, in, in the world of Autism, it means uh, adjustments to our practice as psychiatrists that we can make, uh, you know, to account for the person's autism and, and make their treatment journey uh, more suitable uh, and a better experience for them. So, Diraj, if, let's imagine that, you know, I'm a general psychiatrist working mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a sort of general outpatient clinic, uh, and I, I have, you know, an autistic mm -hmm. patient with 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 mental health issues uh, attending my clinic, what what kind of reasonable adjustments can uh, should psychiatrists be thinking about? So first of all, um, you know, we should make it clear that you know there won't be one answer fit fits everybody um, in that sense. So the first thing you could do is ask the person, you know, would you do you require any adjustments, uh, you know, in order to access our service? Uh, but what we hear from People. This is what I've learned wisdom from working with a lot of autistic people. So some people might require quiet times, for instance, um, not having to wait a long time in a busy waiting room. Uh, when we give people a time, stick to it and not run late. Um, don't cancel change at the last minute. We often ask in our clinics, uh, patients, you know, whether they'd like like the light on, you know, windows are open usually and whether they'd like the, the light on or not. Some people have sensory uh, issues, uh, obviously quiet space. These kind of, these are just some examples I'm talking about from clinical practice, uh, but they work. But everybody, people have their own needs. And in fact, this is also, and I'm passionate about this, that this is not an issue specific to autism. Mm -hmm. We should be asking everyone what your preferences are and trying to meet their uh, uh, preferences. Sometimes very little adaptations can make the experience really, uh, you know, give, give people a really care experience, uh, a good ca caring experience from the services and uh, make them feel valued and listened to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I find some people don't know what some some patients don't know what reasonable adjustments means. Mm -hmm. So what I tend to say now at the beginning of all my consultations is, is how can I best communicate with you today? Exactly. And it's amazing, sort of what 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 tips you'll get you'll get um, just exactly. from asking that simple question. 
And the um, other thing, sorry, one other thing I've learned over the last couple of years, uh, Connor, is about that not everybody prefers a face-to-face -face coming to mm -hmm. the office setting. And, and so the pandemic in some ways has been an advantage in sort of for some not uh, uh, for some people it's make made care more accessible that people are able to you know dial in via clicking a link and come and see us mm -hmm. remotely and feel much less anxious about doing that and and that could be something services could continue to or we can we continue to offer uh, and help some patients yeah certainly in my service we're continuing to offer offer that and, and consistently about 40 percent of our patients prefer the, the video call to the face-to-face to -face appointment. Um, okay, so James, I'll bring you in now on this question of reasonable adjustments in mental health settings for autistic patients. Have you got anything to add? Yeah, I think you've both covered it really well. I mean, I guess I was thinking about it from the perspective of obviously having been a patient before, and um, I think one of the big things that... that um, is is that obviously the sort of there's the journey to the appointment before the appointment as well and also before you've reached that level of care you've had to do quite a lot of quite difficult things so you know you've had to call a gp which is difficult for i think everyone right now um and um you know you've had to um explain your difficulties then you've had to think about what you're going to say before before the appointment and that actually there's probably quite a build-up of anxiety and social anxiety before that person comes to see you and I'm sure that's true for the general population as well it's quite a big thing for anyone to sort of go through this sort of process and I'm sure everyone listening is very aware of that but I think particularly if you're autistic all of the different things and you know I, I certainly know people who would be very anxious for example about how am I going to get to the appointment on time getting on the bus getting transport there what's the environment going to be like before mm -hmm. i appear there so it's actually sharing people information as much information about what the appointment's going to be like ahead of time in terms of that uncertainty issue i think would really help people and so when we ever we do job interviews or events at autistica we will send people pictures of what everything looks like and yeah, and I think the point that um, that you made earlier around this is about everyone is really key. It's really we see that in an employment setting as well, and so we quite often have people who join us at Autistica who've just basically never been asked, like how to, how do, you know what can we do to sort of enable you? And um, I think this is I think that's also about improving attitudes to autism and university more generally, which is just getting us all to recognise that we all need to be communicated with and um, supported in different ways to get the best out of each other and to get the best outcome. Yeah. And uh, I think Devaj mentioned earlier about training. Um, and it's really a message that I'm trying to promote in my role with the college is that, that all psychiatrists should make autism their business. It doesn't matter what specialty, what age group you deal with, you're going to see a lot of autistic people in your clinical practice. So it's incumbent upon all of us to, to make sure mm. we've got the right expertise and the right level of training in autism. Uh, and, it, and it has become a, a sort of legal requirement, in fact, mm. just in July this year, that all um, NHS and social care staff in England and Wales have the right level of autism training. So certainly something to think about for your CPD going forward. Um, I want to come back to the question of suicide 
the, the headline figure here is the risk of suicide in autistic adults is seven to nine times higher than the general population. That's, that's the risk of death by suicide, completed suicide. Um, but can you expand on that? Uh, first of all, I'll come to you, James, and then Diraj. Okay, so um, sure. So I'll leave it with Diraj to explain the data on, on, on completed suicides because that data comes from Sweden, which I know that Diraj is um, particularly familiar with. Just in a, in a broader sense, we know that feelings of suicidality are particularly um, common in autism and, you know, as they are in, in the general population um, as well. But in autism, we see that they're particularly um, prevalent and, and, and that would appear to be an awful lot to do around the, the factors which we've discussed in this podcast date. So untreated or poorly treated mental health issues and feeling marginalized in society, not getting the opportunities that they need to ensure that um, they have access to the same quality of life um, as, as, as many autistic people. And I think there are things about being autistic that um, do pose particular risks, you know, so not being able to disengage from potentially intrusive thoughts um, or the, the fact that um, the autistic people might not communicate the concerns and the feelings they have around suicide in a way that you would see in the general population. I think there was a, um, a case study that somebody once told me about, though, that I think was particularly powerful. So we know that in some cases in the general population, you know, completed suicide at times sort of come slightly out of the blue or, you know, potentially can be a bit of a surprise. You know, quite often in autism, this is a about going back to the point that I've made a couple of times earlier, it's about someone's life trajectory. And actually, this, this is potentially coming for quite a long time. People are experiencing a range of adverse experiences. And this is basically these statistics are just like a slightly tragic encapsulation of a real failure to support and accommodate autistic people in society. And Raj. You're just adding on to what um, James just mentioned. There's a continuum of suicide you know it completed suicide at the severe end of of a continuum of suicidal thoughts and plans self-harm uh, completed suicide and um and there is now sort of increasing evidence that all of these uh, so having this suicidal ideation or finding oneself making plans uh as well as self-harm and completed suicide there's evidence from uh Sweden was one of the first big population-based studies, uh, which showed that. Uh, but increasingly, other studies have found that you know all of these uh, various the whole continuum, people who have both autistic traits and a diagnosis of autism might be overrepresented in this group. So it's a really crucial area. Uh, I mean, until recently, before this, uh, the the Swedish paper came out a few years ago, but before that. Uh, there was literature on self-harm and autism and a quite, you know, a medium sort of sized literature base. But the focus, unfortunately, had always been about uh, the kind of repetitive self-injury, which might be more common in, you know, autistic people who might have severe learning disabilities. That was the basis of the literature. Uh, and, and now we're moving on to this idea of, you know, self-harming behaviors. Uh, and there's some evidence of just last month, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, 
in Sweden, Isidora Stark, who's a who's an autism um, consultant psychiatrist working in autism service uh, in Stockholm. Uh, she published uh, that work on self harm in autistic people and just demonstrating that some higher you know, more severe forms of self-harm might be more prevalent uh, in autistic uh, people. Uh, and now she's working on her next paper. I won't reveal the results on on this link between transition from self-harm to completed suicide and, and whether it's different between uh, males and females. So th some of these questions need to uh, be answered, but, you know, the research is it's a very active area of work. Uh, where we still don't know, but it's very concerning, really, uh, what we know so far, that we might be losing lives, really, and there might be an opportunity to intervene, support people, and avoid preventable deaths. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess what the take-home message for me as a clinician um, is to really take it seriously. If an, if an autistic person speaks to you about, about an intention to take their own lives, um, really take that take that seriously and sometimes it can be a bit misleading because there may not be as much kind of emotional affect associated with it um as you might as you might expect but often when autistic people say something they really mean it you know they, they don't often they don't often lie and i've also heard from sort of clinician again this is clinical wisdom passed on from you know mentors uh but I've heard people talking about like logical suicide, that sort mm. of some people who completed suicide, then, you know, you always saw that they had a very logical, they saw it rather than in an emotional sense. Sure, this is, you know, obviously I'm going to do this because of this, this and that. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and mental health professionals might sometimes, as you pointed out, Connor, see this is the very, this passion like not you, you know they're not talking in emotional language about this and um but then that might still be a person who might have a very high risk mm. so always need to be uh, careful about this okay all right i'm gonna move us on from that topic and we're gonna uh, this is the final topic for the podcast so we're, we're gonna finish on a positive note um and speak about future well in fact current research yeah, uh, and also kind of future directions in terms of autism uh, and mental health research. So, I have been involved, Diraj, in your mm -hmm. in your study, the Strata study. Thank um, you for getting involved. <laughs> You're doing is, so well as a site. <laughs> which has been kind of great for me and my team. I have to say, it's been a fantastic study to be involved in. Uh, but obviously, you can you can tell us more about Strata, Diraj. You're the you're the main man here. <laughs> Well, both of you have been so helpful in this context. So I will, so to begin with, I shall say, you know, this is, I feel incredibly proud and um, optimistic that in the UK, we are doing well in terms of designing studies uh, in relation to supporting autistic people with their mental health. Uh, and, you know, that our funders, the NIHR, with thanks to the efforts of charities like Autistica, uh, have um, commissioned studies on this topic. So really what we need is more randomized trials. As James was pointing out earlier, you know, in our recent systematic review found for mental health problems for adults, there's no randomized trial evidence. So we don't know what to do and how to do it. Um, but the optimistic side, side of me thinks, you know, we've got a few 
couple of large RCTs that are now ongoing and uh, including Strata, which I'm, I have the uh, opportunity to lead alongside uh, so many other wonderful colleagues, teams across the country here in the UK, as well as in Perth in Western Australia. So that Strata is answering a very simple question we should know uh, the answer to. You know, we prescribe, autistic people are prescribed SSRIs like sertraline extremely commonly, like more than half of the autistic population has probably been offered SSRIs uh, at some point of time. But we don't know whether this uh, medication works uh, in this population. Does it help with people's anxiety or depression? What are the side effects? And there's reason to think that the general evidence we have in from SSRI trials is is not as not applicable or sufficient and that's because you know we think about autistic brains being wired a bit differently we have you know strong reason to think that you know autistic people might react differently there's some links with serotonergic pathways being different in autistic um, people uh, but also we've heard about in clinical practice maybe a different type of side effects or tolerable profile. So Strata is now, I'm proud to say it's it's already uh, the world's largest RCT on uh, understanding whether sertraline is more effective than placebo in treating anxiety in autistic people. And um, yeah, we've recruited over 125 people so far and ongoing. And uh, this is something any autistic person can take part from anywhere in the UK. They just have to look at our website, strata. Uh, Bristol Strata, uh, and uh, find us. And they're so psychiatrists, far. I guess. <laughs> if you're a psychiatrist and you have a, an autistic person with anxiety problems, they, they may be, be able to point them yep. in the direction of Strata. Oh, absolutely. So there's a refer, people can refer patients uh, directly uh, to us. There's a simple uh, referral form, which is available on our website. So, so you can look at uh, uh, Google us, Bristol Strata. Uh, yeah, we, have also, to, we have to get the plug in. <laughs> yeah, thank you. But I should also mention some excellent work other colleagues are doing. Um, so another trial I'm involved with, uh, led by Elsa Russell in Bath, who... Uh, uh, is investing so uh, this the trial is called adapt to and um, it's investigating whether an adapted form of cbt this guided self-help really adapted designed with and with autistic people whether that's more beneficial for depression in autistic people than a than treatment as usual so that trial is also up and running now and it's recruiting across the country. Um, so these two complementary trials, so, you know, the question, I know people can think about medication or people might have very strong views about medication. For instance, some people have more strong views about talking treatments. Uh, but the uh, positive thing here is that, you know, we have these big, large trials, which will answer important questions that are ongoing. Uh, and uh, and they're happening here right at our, you know, in, in the UK. Excellent. Yeah, no, it's great that these two trials are, are going on and yeah, they're answering such important questions. Like we said all the way through today's podcast, we, we really need more uh, high quality research in this area. Uh, so it's great to hear. Uh, James, 
from from your point of view, what are the most exciting kind of research developments that are going on at the moment, and and, and what direction do you hope this field takes in future? So, so from my perspective, I think one of the most exciting one of the most exciting things is, is is actually just understand what people's priorities are. So that's been really beneficial for us as a field because it's been enabled us to convince, as Diraj talked about, NIHR to fund the brilliant work that Diraj is doing to get those sort of vital clinical trials off of the ground to understand things that mental health are a clear priority for autistic people is, is, is really um, important to us. I think also in the context of mental health, particularly in areas like anxiety, we're beginning to understand why issues like anxiety exist and that will help us to build a more personalised understanding of what will and won't be helpful for different types of autistic people because it's all it's really important to understand that within the mm. autism spectrum as you both understand very well i'm sure um all of the clinicians that you work with understand very well it's a very it's a very heterogeneous condition um as well and i think also we can see that um a greater connection and interplay between research and policy as well as so we're certainly seeing within nhs england this is being prioritised more proactively, although there's always more to do in that area. And one of the things that Autistica is really beginning to think about as a charity is how the next, over the next decade, we can deliver real change for autistic people and their families. And we've created 20, 30 goals, which are really about our belief that we are we are at a point where we have quite a lot of evidence now around things that may or may not work or could be at a point over the next 10 years where we have really clear answers and what how we could alter that trajectory that autistic people experience over over their lives and we are now at a stage where we've got again a lot of it based in the UK one of um, the best clinical trials ever undertaken in the UK looking at how parents and families can support autistic children um, from the moment um, they get around the time they get a diagnosis and evidence really showing that actually you can support autistic people and, and, and autistic children with a range of different types of difficulties and what we also believe is that you know there are other interventions which are quite simple around helping people to understand strength and needs psychoeducation which are really going to help to change people's life experiences um, as well and there's a range of other things ongoing so we've got a trial ongoing looking at he the effectiveness of health checks and the commitment from NHS England to implement those um, if they're effective which I think will be important for not just identifying physical health problems but also mental health problems as well and if we can do broader work that we're doing at the moment sort of around how you can change attitudes how you can make environments more accessible that's also going to play into into lowering the likelihood of mental health problems and the same thing is true for work as well so how we can create enabling workspaces for autistic people so i think there's that addressing the mental health issues that autistic people face is, is partly about clinical care but it's also partly about building a sort of portfolio of evidence and make sure that autistic people's life trajectories are better and then finally if we can begin to understand how we can prevent some of these mental health problems from occurring or at least not meeting a, a, a threshold where it, it really really significantly affects people's quality of life I think that would be a really exciting thing for us to focus on over the next decade I think 
um, continuing the trials that um, DRI just talks around, the effectiveness of different types of medication, different types of therapy is really, really important. And then finally, and crucially, understanding how we can prevent these particularly adverse outcomes that we see in the context of mental health for autistic people, I think is going to be really important. So understanding how we stop um, people from entering inpatient units, how we get them out quickly, how we support them appropriately in, 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 in the community, understanding what's driving those um, admissions. And then and then and the same is true for sort of issues around suicide as well. So I think um, in the UK, there's a huge opportunity for us to continue to take the lead on this. And so actually over the next decade, we'll have a real change for autistic people and their families. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a nice note to finish on. And it's um, it's really great to hear that the, the UK is at the, the cutting edge of, of some of this, this new research and it's really bodes well for the future. So we're going to finish up there. I'd just like to say thank you very much, uh, Diraj and James, for giving up the time to, to, to do the podcast today. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. I think we've covered a lot of ground and hopefully the listeners found it um, interesting. Um, if you are listening and you're a member of the Royal College, if you're a psychiatrist colleague, uh, I'll do a quick plug for the neurodevelopmental special interest group. Uh, if you're interested in autism or neurodevelopmental conditions, please join the, the ND SIG and uh, you can find the details of how to do that on the Royal College website. The other thing just to mention before we sign off is that this podcast will be uh, uh, will give you CPD credits but to, but to access those please complete the short module test that's associated with the podcast so thanks for listening and goodbye